sins. Have you ever heard of the seven deadly sins? Uh, the seven deadly sins are a grouping of vices or sins that are grouped together uh, in Christian teaching. They are behaviors or habits that give birth to other sins. So when you hear of the seven deadly sins, these are seven sins that give birth uh, to other sins. Lust and gluttony and greed and sloth uh, and wrath and envy and pride. These are what we call, it's not a biblical term, but it's just a theological uh, teaching term, the seven deadly sins. There are seven virtues that I won't list that go with those seven deadly sins. So if there are seven deadly sins, there are seven virtues that correspond with them. And again, these are seven sins that Christian teachers and preachers and theologians have just noticed. When you engage in these sins, it seems they invariably give birth to other sins. The sin of envy. In the book of Acts, the sin of envy or the sin of jealousy has long-term consequences for the way the gospel was spread. Now, uh, before we turn the text, all right, look right at me. Before we turn there, here's the difference between envy and jealousy. They're very close. They correspond very closely together. They're often uh, considered synonyms of one another, but there's a slight difference. If I'm envious of somebody or something, uh, that just means that I desire it and I want it. So if I see my neighbor's house, and I see it's a great house, and I just can't stop thinking about it, and, 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 and it consumes my thoughts, and I, and I want it, right? Or I see an automobile, and my neighbor has it, and I become envious. I think, boy, I've got to, I've got to have that house, and I won't be satisfied unless I do. Or if I see my neighbor's wife or my neighbor's husband and I think if that was just my wife or my husband, then I would be fulfilled uh, and envy creeps in. Envy is when you desire something else. Jealousy is slightly different. Jealousy can be envy. Jealousy can be envy. That, that can be uh, part of it. But with jealousy, uh, oftentimes you don't actually have to have the thing. With envy, you want it, you got to have it. Sometimes with jealousy, uh, it's not so much that you want it, it's that you don't want the other person to have it. You uh, recognize that because they have it, that makes you feel inferior. Because they have it, they must be enjoying life more than you are. And so envy, you don't necessarily have to have it with jealousy. Envy you do, you just want it. With jealousy, sometimes with jealousy, you just content that, well, God... Uh, and you may not tell God this, but in your heart you know it. I don't have to have it. Just don't let them have it. Don't let them have that happiness. Don't let them have that thing. Why do they always get that? Boy, uh, if they didn't have that, that would make me feel better. Jealousy is a killer. Now I want you to listen. Our, our text is going to be long today, but this is probably the shortest message uh, I told my mom last night, I said, this is the shortest message I've ever worked on before. And it's just right right to the point. So I want you to listen to the story, and there's going to be one key phrase about jealousy in this story. And then just, we're just going to hit it home. But I want you to know something today. I believe there are multiple people in this room that if you were honest before God this morning, jealousy is something that you struggle 
with. And so I want you to open your heart up to God. So go to Acts chapter 13 and go uh, and turn when you get to Acts uh, chapter 13 and go uh, to verse 13. And let's start there and let's read together uh, how things are unfolding in the book of Acts and let's see this problem that jealousy causes. All right, so Acts chapter uh, 13, starting in verse 13. Now, when Paul and his company, remember Paul and Barnabas, they're on this preaching mission, this missionary mission. Uh, when they loosed from Paphos, uh, they came to Perga in uh, Paph- uh, Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. So John leaves the missionary group. It's Paul and Barnabas. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Poseidon and, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. So they go into a service, and they sit there. And the way this service uh, works is the, the Word of God, the Old Testament, would be read, and then uh, it would be talked about, and then uh, they would have some discussion about it. So verse 15, after the reading of the Law and the Prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent unto them and said, You men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up and beckoning with his hand said, men of Israel, and you that fear God, give audience. Listen to me. He says, listen to me. Give me an audience. And this is the sermon that he preached. Now, now I could skip this, but I'm not going to. And the reason I'm not going to skip this is because in the past few weeks, a very famous pastor uh, who has made a number of statements that, that have caused turmoil within the church recently said that what we need to do as Christians is we need to unhinge from the Old Testament. We need to unhinge from the Old Testament. Now, whatever he meant by that, and I've, and I've actually looked and read a lot, uh, he is wrong. He is he, popular or not, and many people have called him out on it, and you may have seen this. We do not need to unhinge from the Old Testament. We need to understand that Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament. Amen, church? With a lot of things have been seen on Facebook and Twitter by this uh, pastor who made this comment, uh, who said this, and uh, I, don't, I rarely ever call preachers out, but uh, I know a lot of people follow Charles Stanley, and I believe it's his son that said this. I need to double check, but, uh, and many people in his own denomination, Southern Baptist, they've come hard back at him for what he said, and that's wrong, and I want you to see we do not unhinge from the Old Testament because I want you to see that Paul's preaching is based in the Old Testament and how Jesus fulfilled it, so we do not need to use language that we need to unhinge from the Old Testament or the moral law, all right? So let's read together and let's see this sermon that is preached by Paul, all right? So he says, men of Israel, and you that fear God, give audience. The God of this people of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with a high arm brought he them out of it. He brought them with his mighty arm out of Egypt. We sang, who can stand against our God? Pharaoh couldn't. Uh, Egypt couldn't, with a great army, took them out. And about that time of 40 years, they suffered. He suffered their manners or their disobedience in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed the seven nations, the land of Canaan, he divided their land to them by lot. Egypt could not stand against our God. The kingdoms of Canaan could not stand against our God. After that, he gave unto them judges about the space of 450 years until Samuel the prophet. So they have a long period of judges that rule. Afterward, they desired a king. 
And God gave unto them Saul, the son of Sis, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, by the space of forty years. And when he had removed him, so Saul gets removed, he, he, the Bible teaches he falls into apostasy and rebellion towards God. So he is removed, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave a testimony. He gave a testimony when David becomes king. I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, which shall fulfill all of my will. Of this man's seed, David, has God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. When John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance of all the people of Israel, and as John fulfilled his course, he said, Whom do you think that I am? And what did John answer? John answered that, I am not he. He says, I'm not the Messiah, I'm not the Savior. But behold, there comes one after me whose shoes of his feet I am not worthy to loose. So men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whoever among you fears God. Now that's important. He gives this to Israel, but as we're going to see, there are also Gentile God-fearers that are there listening This is important for those who would say you must unhinge from the Old Testament wrong. Gentiles needed to understand what Jesus had done and who he was and how he had fulfilled in their day. And we need to understand as well. So he says unto them, children of Israel, and whoever among you fears God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. If you're glad salvation's for all, say amen. It's not just one people group. He says, it's for everybody who can hear, whether you're of Abraham. Oh, it's for Abraham, but it's for everyone. Verse 27, they that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, uh, nor yet, they also didn't know the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath day. They heard the word of God in Jerusalem every day, but they they, uh, would listen, but they could not hear. They listened, but they could not really hear what those scriptures had to say. They are read every Sabbath day. They have fulfilled them in condemning him. Though they found no cause of death in him, in Jesus, yet they desired that of Pilate that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. They laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And he was seen many days of them which came up from Galilee to Jerusalem who are his witness unto the people, and we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God has fulfilled the same unto us their children, and that he has raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, this day have I begotten you. And as concerning, he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption. He said on the wise, I will give you the mercies, the sure mercies of David. And he'd also said in another psalm, You shall not suffer your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on asleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. But he, Jesus, whom God raised again, saw no corruption. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, through this man is preached unto you, through Jesus who has fulfilled the, uh, the Old Testament law and the prophets, Jesus who is now the manifestation of that mighty arm of God that defeated the Egyptians and the people of Canaan, be it known unto you, verse 38, 
men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. By him all that believe are justified from all things, from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Moses' law can expose the sin. Jesus' law of love and grace can justify us to rightness with God. Jesus doesn't just expose your sin. He has the power to forgive your sin and not the, the, uh, the sacrificial offerings over and over again that point to the final sacrifice. He is that sacrifice. So beware. He's reaching the latter part of his sermon. Beware, therefore, lest it come upon you that which is spoken in of the prophets. Behold, you despisers and wonder and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. And when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, the Gentiles besought, or they begged, they asked, that these words might preach, be preached to them again the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas. So the Gentiles want to know more about this because, oh my goodness, they're included in the work of God. They want to know more. But there are also Jews that want to know more. They, they want to know more. So the congregation is broken up. Many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. But when the Jews... So there are some Jews that are listening. There are some Jews that are responding. But there are others who will respond in a different way. When the Jews saw the multitude... They were filled with envy, and they spoke against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It is necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you. But seeing you put it from you, you want nothing to do with it. You judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. That's why we don't have to judge the eternal state of people. God is the judge, and ultimately people are making their own judgment about their life and their eternal destiny when they choose to either accept or reject Jesus. They said, hey, you, you have judged yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. So, lo, that means the same thing in the New Testament as the Old. Pay attention. Lo, we turn to the Gentiles. This does not mean that there are not Jews who will continue to get saved. You see that in the book of Acts. What they are saying is, Jewish leadership, you don't want to listen, you don't want to embrace, you don't want to be a part. We are going to turn and to go where the gospel is welcomed. For so as the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set you to be a light of the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. And by the way, if you notice throughout this sermon, they're repeatedly quoting the Old Testament. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad. They glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was published throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and honorable women and the chief men of the city and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them out of their coast, out of their land. But they, Paul and Barnabas, shook off the dust of their feet against them came unto Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost. The Jews were envious. The Jews were jealous. 
They are jealous of the crowds that are listening and learning about the Messiah. They desire those crowds. They desire those worshipers. And so they are not happy that these crowds are now listening and learning about the freedom that God gives in Christ. Now we saw from our text this morning that some among the crowd were coming to faith. Some of those are Jews. So who are these jealous or these envious Jews? Well, we saw at the end of the chapter there that they were able to stir up the devout and honorable women, uh, women of prestige, and the chief men of the city. This leads me to believe, it's my opinion, but I'd say it's a very strong opinion, if they had the ability to stir up the upper classes, uh, this means they are probably leaders and well off. They are, they are probably not the bottom of Jewish society. Now, there are probably some that are in that category. But if they've got the ability to get the upper classes worked up this way, I assume it's the same problem they faced at Jerusalem, which is there is a leadership uh, that is moving and instigating the Jews to reject this message. These are probably Jewish leaders who are behind this. We know from the ministry of Jesus, that the Jewish leaders, especially the Pharisees, love to be seen in crowds. Uh, they would love Sunday morning worship. They would love the city gatherings uh, for Memorial Day and for July 4th. They would love Christmas in the park. The Pharisees would love that kind of stuff. By the way, the bigger the church, the better. They, they would have loved that. How do we know that? Well, Jesus said in Matthew 6, 5, Jesus said, when you pray, do not be as the hypocrites are. He's talking about the Pharisees. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Now is it a sin to stand and pray? Absolutely not. But their problem is they're not standing so everyone can hear their voice. They're not standing as a sign of honor to who God is. That's not really why the Pharisees are doing that. Those would be legitimate and good reasons to, to stand when you pray. Uh, you want people, if you're leading a group in prayer, you want to, to help, uh, uh, help lead that group in prayer. If you're preaching a message, uh, you're either going to stand or sit on a stool or whatever, be where, be where people can see and hear the message. That's, that's, the problem is the heart, and he says, I know what their heart really is. And their heart is, the thing that they love, is they love to be seen by others in their religious activity. He even says that the way they dress, that they were so proud of, is actually a sign of sin in their heart. Jesus said in Matthew 23, 5, all of their works they do to be seen of men. They make broad their baglateries uh, and enlarge the borders of their garments. Jesus says the dress that they put on, uh, the way that they dress, he said, really, all that is about is so you will see them and you will think to yourself, wow, they're serious about God. They're serious about what they are doing. So we know from Jesus, the Jewish leaders love to be seen. They love to be seen in a crowd. They love to be respected by others for their religious teaching and their religious authority. So you can imagine, knowing what Jesus has already taught us about the Pharisees, that these religious leaders, whether they're in Antioch, whether they're in Jerusalem or wherever, they will not be happy when crowds begin to turn from looking at them and their teaching and 
their way of life and begin looking to Jesus. They are in danger of losing power. They know it. Because when we say Jesus is Lord and Savior, that is important because He both saves us from hell and from ourselves and from sins, but He is also our Lord, which means He is the authority that we are to look to. If Jesus is your Lord today, say amen. He is your Lord and Savior. And these leaders know that looking to Jesus as Lord and Savior that Paul and Barnabas are preaching means not looking at them because they are aligned with the very people that led the way for Jesus to be killed. So jealousy kicks in. Envy kicks in. And I think part of the key problem, again, is what Jesus taught us. They love the crowd. They love having the crowd look at them. And they are losing that. That's part of why uh, the persecution grows and intensifies. And uh, the Jewish uh, leadership and, and a lot of the people more intensely begin to oppose the ministry of Jesus. Well, it's okay, maybe. I mean, they're not excited that there are a few people following Jesus. Boy, after Pentecost, uh-oh, in Jerusalem, they realize we got a problem on our hand. Now they've got, a, they've got a growing worldwide problem because now people all over the place are not looking to them anymore. They're looking to Jesus. They're not just opposing Paul and Barnabas, though. The Word of God says they are opposing God Himself. They're opposing God's kingdom. So this is my word to you today. If there is jealousy in your heart, you must kill it. Because jealousy in your heart will lead you to not just oppose people, to not just want to see other people not do well. If you do not kill jealousy, it will lead you to oppose the very work of God. There's a story about two shopkeepers. There were two shopkeepers, and they did not like each other. They were in competition, and uh, they knew it. They knew they were in competition, and they didn't get along, and they didn't like each other, and their stores were right across the street from each other. And these two shopkeepers, uh, the story goes that every day, uh, if one of them uh, made a sale, made a big sale, he would, he would walk over to the window, walk the customer to the door, so the other shopkeeper could see that he had just made a sale, that he had just made some money. And they both did this. They both engaged in this activity to make sure that the other one knew when they made a sale, when they had good business. And uh, it went on and on and on. And these two guys just jealous, jealous, jealous of each other. One day an angel appeared to one of the shopkeepers. Now, remember, this is just a story, not, not a true story, just a, a parable, uh, a lesson here, all right? So uh, uh, an angel appeared to one of the shopkeepers and said, I'm going to give you one thing. He's not a genie, he's an angel, I'm going to give you one thing, not three, just one. One thing, anything you want, anything you desire, I will do for you. But the angel said, there's one catch. Whatever I do for you, your shopkeeper friend across the street will get double. So whatever I do to you, he will get double what you give. And the shopkeeper thought, and he pondered, and a scowl came across his face. And he looked at the angel and he said, uh, you mean to tell me that if I ask for good health, that he's going to get great health? And the angel said, that's right. If you get good health, he'll get great health. You mean to tell me that if I make a million dollars this year, that he's going to make two million dollars this year? And he said, that's, that's exactly right. You mean to tell me that if I ask for 
a new car, he's going to get two new cars. The angel said, that's exactly right. Whatever you ask, you will get, but he will get double. The shopkeeper had the scowl, a look of anger on his face. He stared back at the angel, but then in an instant, in a twinkle of an eye, the scowl turned to a smile, a devious smile. And the shopkeeper looked to his ang- at the angel, and he said, if he gets double whatever I get, then I want you to blind me in one eye. One eye. You see, my friends, that's what jealousy does. If you do not kill jealousy, if you do not stomp jealousy out, if you do not uh, turn to God with the sin of jealousy and lay at His feet and say, Lord, help me get a grip on the fact that I'm so consumed with what other people get and with what other people receive, and I'm so consumed that I'm not getting that. And Lord, would you just kill this feeling in me that the truth is I'd be a lot happier if they didn't have what they have? The jealousy. Beware of envy. Beware of jealousy. Beware of not being content with what God has blessed you with because it will destroy you. You know, one sign of jealousy, you say, how do I know if I have this sin? How do I know, Pastor, practically if I'm struggling with jealousy? One sign of jealousy is when you find it easier to show sympathy and weep with those who weep. Hey, it's good to weep with those who weep. But I've heard it said, and I agree, if you find it easier to weep with those who weep than to exhibit joy and rejoice with those who have good things in their life, then you probably are struggling with jealousy. We all know that person. And any time something else good happens to them, they got to say something negative about it to somebody else. Oh, we know how they get their money. Oh, we, well, they couldn't have got this right. That couldn't have been the hand of God's blessing. Listen, Proverbs 27, 4 states, Wrath is cruel and anger is outrageous. But who is able to stand before envy or jealousy? Now, we just sang a song, Who Can Stand Before God? And we repeated that frame several times to drive that point home. The answer is no one can. So when that same terminology is used in Proverbs 27, 4, who is able to stand before envy or jealousy, understand the answer is saying, if jealousy gets a hold of your heart, there is no one who can withstand the bitterness that it will unleash in your soul. So what is it today or who is it today that you are jealous of? As a follower of Christ, you need to be honest today. Confess your jealousy and let God deal with it. Jealousy that is not acknowledged and dealt with spiritually, swiftly, and decisively will enslave you. It will affect all areas of your life. Jealousy left free to run will stunt your growth in Jesus, will destroy your friendships and your marriages. Jealousy is a wrecking ball. And you know this weekend, Memorial Day weekend, it is so easy to be jealous. Oh my goodness. Did you see on Facebook that group of friends that rented a cabin this weekend? They're putting pictures of their kids swimming and having fun and doing all this stuff, but they didn't invite me. Did you see the new boat? Did you see the pictures of the new boat that'll be out on the lake this week? And I don't have a boat, or if I've got one, it's just some rinkety-dinkety John boat. Boy, jealousy can creep in. 
Now, if Laura was here, I could preach to her. She wants a Jeep so bad it's killing her. You know. You know what my wife and I do sometimes when we, uh, when we see things that other people have? I'm just going to give you the concrete thing we do. And this is going to lead into spiritual principle and then we're done. My wife and I, when there's something that we see that somebody else has, and one of us will say, man, that would be nice. That would be nice to have that. My wife and I, over and over and over again, we'll say that and we'll think it for a minute. And then my wife and I invariably say, yeah, but look at this house we live in. Would you have dreamed when we were living in apartments that we would have had this house? No, we don't have the Jeep. No, you don't have a new car. Yes, when it came to time to buy a vehicle, I thought we would get the Toyota 4Runner, but when I did the research and the pricing, had to downgrade to a Subaru Outback because that was the wise thing to do. Yeah, I don't have all that. But Laura, did you ever think, and she'll look at me and say, did you ever think we'd live in a house this great? You know what we do even beyond that? Beyond that, we'll look at each other and we'll say, did you ever think that God would ever entrust us with two boys that we could ever love this much? Do you think God would ever let us pastor a church that unlike many of our friends, our boys don't dread going to church because they're the preacher's kids. Our boys cannot wait to get to church because they have so many friends and people that love them. You see, here is the antidote to envy and jealousy in your life. The antidote to envy and jealousy. You say, you said kill it quickly. You said deal with it decisively. You said it must be stopped or it'll grip your heart and your soul and it will destroy you. So pastor, help me. What is the answer to envy and jealousy? The answer to envy and jealousy when it creeps into your life is to begin to give thanks to God for what He has given you. To begin to rejoice and find joy in the blessings that He has poured out on your life. That, my friends, it's not, you don't have to have a Ph.D., you don't have to go listen to talk shows. Though. You, you can just look at God's Word where it says over and over again, be thankful for what God has given you. Have a spirit of joy and thankfulness for what God has done in your life. And there, my friends, you have found the answer to the jealousy and envy that will destroy you. I beg with you. I plead with you. The next time... You see it on Facebook. You read it on Twitter. You see it in your neighbor's yard. And you begin to think within yourself, i got to have that. Or you find yourself a little upset that, well, why do they get to sing all the time? Why do they get to do this all the time? Why has it worked out this way for them? I beg of you to do what the Word of God says and kill that and kill it by doing what the Word of God says, which is by giving thanks for what God has done for you. Don't be jealous of somebody else's marriage. Don't be jealous of somebody else's job, somebody else's house. Yes, you can look at things and it can be a motivator to help you realize I can do better and here's how I can do it. But beware of that falling into the false fruit, the demonic fruit of jealousy. List the things. Focus on the things that God has given you and you will begin to develop a new fruit. 
the fruit of the Holy Spirit. What is the fruit of the Holy Spirit? It's listed. And one of those is joy. And joy comes from being thankful and attentive to what God has done for you. In that sermon that was preached, all they did was give attention to how good God had been to Israel. And they listed those things, pointed out how some opposed that. But now in Jesus, the ultimate gift has been given. So how do we celebrate Memorial Day weekend? More importantly, how do we exhibit a Christ-like life every day? Can I tell you what you need to do this Memorial Day weekend? You need to be thankful for freedom. And you need to appreciate the sacrifices that others have made. Because others have paid ultimate sacrifices to secure a way of life that allows us to enjoy freedoms that honestly many people in the world today still dream of. If you are glad for the ability to gather and worship today, and then on Monday if you want to, as long as it's legal, you can go do anything you want to that you are capable of doing on Monday. There is no authority in the government that's going to stop you unless it's illegal. The choices are endless. If you are glad we can worship today and have the freedom to celebrate tomorrow in whatever way you see fit, say amen. We should be thankful, not jealous, and not envious. And so today I'm thankful for the ultimate sacrifice made by others so I can stand and freely preach the word of God. I'm glad that Jesus has won for us salvation and has shown us the path of life. I'm thankful today for Paul and Barnabas who kept on preaching in the face of opposition, who when they were forced to quit, they didn't just move on uh, and stop preaching, they moved on and kept preaching. They had to leave, but they kept preaching. You see, today, jealousy ultimately comes from the devil. It seems from the scriptures, you need to understand this, every time you're jealous, every time you are envy, it's not a harm. Sometimes we think those are harmless sins. They're not. Jealousy and envy will destroy you as quickly as sexual infidelity, just in a different way. I say that again? Jealousy and envy will destroy you as quick as the woman or the man that sleeps with anybody who comes around. It will destroy you just as quickly, just in a different way. You see, jealousy is the devil's territory. Because if I understand the Bible, it seems to suggest that the devil was jealous of God. Jealous of God's power, position, and rule. The devil was not satisfied with what the Creator had given him, so he had to attempt to supplant it to get things that did not belong to him. So when you engage in jealousy and envy, Remember, you are engaging in the activity that brought pain and death and both hell on this earth and a hell beyond it to come for all eternity. Jealousy, my friends, is the devil's territory. But thankfulness is the territory and the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So be thankful for Jesus. Thankful for the Father's love. And let it go. Let the jealousy go. Let it go by becoming thankful and watch at the fruit that the Holy Spirit will bring in your lives. Beware of envy. Beware of jealousy. And instead, do as verse 52 says, filled with joy. 
and with the Holy Ghost. Would you stand with me this morning as our musicians come? They're going to come today and sing. If you wrestle with jealousy, you are not alone. If you struggle with not being thankful the way you should be, you are not alone. Maybe today you need to come and confess your sin. If that's what God needs you to do today, my friend, you do it. There may be somebody in this room that envy or jealousy or bitterness towards someone else has kept you from embracing Jesus. Listen, don't let that stop you. Come and receive the joy that the Savior gives. Father God, we ask right now that you would move in the midst and use this message, use this sermon. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's see, so what number this morning?